The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Man. Been an exciting week, right? Not least for Rishi Sunak, who has finally managed and got his work hard on this, managed to bring inflation down, halved it. And that was one of his his targets. I don't think he's going to hit any of the others. But, But he's done this all by himself, right? He has. It's a spectacular achievement. He must have been running around the Sainsbury's Isles with his wee ticker stamp all all, all year, cutting prices. That's me. Now, I did a, a Twitter poll um, this week asking people if they thought that inflation had been brought down. And I'd like to point out before we go any further that it's still over double over double the Bank of England target and up over 16% over the last couple of years. So let's not get overexcited here. But nonetheless, under 5% is still a good thing. Anyway, I did a Twitter poll asking, do people think that inflation has been brought down by that nice Rishi Sunak or by something else? And pretty much everyone voted for something else. And it is really something else, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the something else is basically maths. Um, the... You know, inflation went up, or the inflation rates went up, and uh, now inflation is not going up as quickly as it did last year because it went up so quickly last year. I mean, you know, I, I think the the government's uh, sort of saying that it would have inflation was kind of the usual daft political thing. Um, some people pointed out, well, they they took a lot of flack for inflation going up in the first place, and technically that wasn't really their fault either. So maybe it's okay for them to you know say that you know it's. it's it's their actions that have halved inflation, but um, but no, silly. Um, uh, and also uh. just a hostage to fortune because nobody thinks that they're the ones that have brought inflation down as much. And you know, we still got a couple of months to go to the end of the year, and I don't think it will go back above five percent, but you never know. And also, we must be very careful, and we've talked a lot on this podcast, you and I, and our guests, about how difficult it is to bring inflation down properly below to 2% or below after it's gone over 8%. And so we may be celebrating slightly now thinking, oh, well, this is all over. But history tells us that it very rarely is over in such a short time. And there may be extremely difficult times. Now, on that, uh, thinking of that, our interview today is with uh, Barry Norris, and we talk a lot about that in Wind. We recorded the interview before John and I recorded this conversation. And since the interview with Barry, which is 
uh, it, to a large degree about renewable energy and about the price of wind power, etc. The government has announced uh, what they call on their website, boost for offshore wind as government raises maximum prices in renewable energy auction. Now, that may be a boost for offshore wind and that the maximum prices available to them have gone up by 66% or will go up 66% in the contracts for, for difference round that they do next year. And also, there's also a funny little bit in here about how the projects could get more money if they reduce their carbon emissions and their supply chains, which is which is an, an interesting bit in itself, because we like to think that there's no carbon emissions involved in, in wind. And then if they demonstrate a positive social impact on communities. So what this is telling us is that there is a recognition that wind is significantly more expensive than people thought it would be. And we talk about this with Barry, but where is that cost going to end up? And we can tell you where it's going to end up. It's going to end up on your energy bill. The point being that, as we just said, there are still a lot of pressures in here that might push prices up rather than down, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's as you say, history shows that um, this is the, the tricky bit, getting it down from, you know, 5 4% back down to the target rate is the kind of grinding difficult bit. Um And uh, I think Rob Arnott from uh, Research Affiliates, sorry, it was... Uh, saying uh, yesterday I think it was making the point that um, it's actually quite likely that inflation in the US will edge back up to 4% by the end of the year and that's not necessarily like a massive deal in itself but when you look at how the market reacted and how the market is still in this sort of mental mode of expecting interest rate cuts to just be round the corner and I think that's where there's a massive potential source of disappointment for investors overall. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm quite happy with the idea that rates have probably peaked for now. But the idea that they're going to come down and are basically, you know, now back on the kind of ski slope down to zero, uh, you know, any minute now, is incredibly unrealistic. Yeah, it feels like that bit is over. But there is one little upside right now, which is that for a... This period, and it may be a short period, we don't know, but right now, right now, interest rates are higher than inflation, right? So you could conceivably get a real return on a deposit account. Yes, yes, you can, um, which is jolly good. And also they are ISA rates. So uh, because every, every time I've mentioned this on Twitter, people have been saying, oh, yeah, but it's not tax-free. Well, actually, no, you can put money in an ISA, assuming you haven't used up your £20,000 allowance yet. Um, and uh, you can get upwards of 5.8% on a fixed one-year ISA, um, which, I, I mean, look, I, I think that that's, that's a good deal and you're going to get almost more than likely a real return over the course of the year um, if you feel that, you know, you've got cash and you don't want to put it in equities or bonds, for example, or you don't need instant access to it, then that seems like a pretty good deal. Excellent. Take that deal, listeners. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
Obviously, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, we're bringing you a conversation with Barry Norris, the founder, CEO, and CIO of Argonaut, which he started in 2005. Barry has managed a couple of funds, the Argonaut European Alpha Fund and the Argonaut Pan-European Fund, since he launched both in 2005. And he also manages the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund, since he started that one in 2009. Now, not all of you will be familiar with Barry, though I'm pretty sure some of you will be. Uh, so I started out asking him to tell us more about the fund itself, the Absolute Return Fund, and its performance. I manage a, a longshore equity product, the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund. The fund has been unique in the UK fund management world in that it has delivered double-digit returns in each of the last five calendar years and obviously very different market regimes. And we find that we also have a skill which many managers don't have, which is that we're good at shorting. And as a result of that, we have delivered actually more than 100% of our total return in the last five years in negative market months. So we always say to people, we're a fund which isn't correlated to the market, isn't correlated to any other fund, whether it be active or passive. And then, therefore, we deliver at times that other funds don't deliver, and, of course, vice versa as well. So we blend very well, and it's worth paying an active management fee for a fund that actually isn't reliant on market beta. Okay. So long and short, there are a lot of funds out there that do say that they're long and short, but don't necessarily really focus on the short book in the way that you do. Let's talk about the general market environment first. Everybody we talk to has a different view on exactly where the market's going now. Everyone has a different view on interest rates and inflation and the extent to which they matter to markets as a whole. So when you look at the next few years, how do you see the overall environment? Well, I see a different macro regime, which many investors that perhaps have only experienced the post-2008 regime have yet to come to terms with. So if we think about the last 50 years of investing, basically from the early 80s until 2008, governments were small. They ran 
very prudent fiscal budgets and debt to GDP in the Western world was effectively 30 to 40%. And then post the financial crisis, you see this massive expansion of the size of government balance sheets, which was financed by QE. And that both meant that the cost of the debt and the quantity of the debt were favourable to governments. So they could increase the quantity of debt without increasing the cost because central banks were monetizing the debt. And that's led to government activity expanding since 2008, which has been relatively painless for everyone because central banks were buying it. But now, the last couple of years, we find that as a result of all of this money printing, which, yes, did get into the real economy because the liability of those assets that the, the central banks were buying ended up in terms of uh, expanding bank deposits, that resulted in significant inflation. That means that interest rates have gone up. And I think what we're seeing is actually just a complete reverse of what happened since uh, 2008, when long duration assets did very well, growth stocks did very well, private equity funding, profitless companies did very well. And actually, what we're seeing is the reverse, which is a transfer back from long duration assets into short duration assets. And that really continues to my mind, just simply because of the size of government now in the economy and the need for financial markets to keep funding government deficits and government spending. And bear in mind that the US deficit at the moment is 8% of GDP, which would have Keynes turning in his grave if he was actually buried rather than cremated. Because, of course, Keynes only thought that governments should stimulate when economies were in recession. So we're running a, a, a massive deficit in the US of 8%, which is stimulating the economy at the time where our full employment, when the Fed is about trying to slow the economy, that is not only very unhelpful in terms of the path of global interest rates, but it eventually crowds out all other forms of investment. If you like, the US deficit is a beast that needs to be fed. And in the absence of central bank QE, every treasury that's bought needs to be funded by another asset being sold. And that's basically risk assets everywhere else in the world. So this ends badly, either ends with a fiscal reckoning where governments have to tighten their belts so we get a hard landing that way, or it ends with treasury yields having to suck capital in for every other asset in the world and crowd out. And I think eventually, perhaps we always end with the easiest solution, which is probably that central banks go back to Q, QE and then you get rampant inflation again. And which of those two things do you expect, Barry? I think it obviously depends on which politicians are in power to an extent. But I think at the moment, let's think that the political norms are very much that government has got a solution for every problem. And that leads me to believe that politicians aren't going to give up on big government particularly quickly. So I think the more likely aspect is that risk assets continue to be crowded out by treasury yields, and then you get a crash, you might get some more responsibility in terms of fiscal spending. But ultimately, the most likely aspect is you go back to QE with central bankers denying that they're monetizing government spending. But of course, many of us think the opposite. 
Okay, so we end up in a fairly long-term inflationary environment as well. And we're seeing inflation coming down quite fast all over the place at the moment. But that feels pretty temporary in the scenario that you're talking about. Yeah, I think we should be clear that over the last couple of months, inflation started to go back up again. And it's kind of indicating this structural nature of inflation. We've had some rather big wage increases being negotiated. And the economy, particularly in the US, is still very buoyant because federal spending is up 11% year on year. So what the trade-off between the economy not being in recession and rates is obvious. And I Uh think if you had fiscal prudence and fiscal responsibility at the moment, interest rates would already be lower on a global basis because the economy and inflation would have already slowed down. But you can't have one or the other. So in this environment, how are you investing? Well, we follow an earnings surprise style. So in general, we want stocks in the long book with upgrades and stocks in the short book with downgrades. I would say we're more value conscious than many of our peers that have done well over the last decade. And we definitely don't like unprofitable companies on high uh, multiples to sale that are burning cash, particularly where we don't think they've got a credible product or where that product is reliant on government subsidies, which actually, unfortunately, is so much of the investment world when fund managers are through ESG prepared to to fund all of this stuff. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those areas where you are short, some of the sectors where you think that other people are far too optimistic. And the classic for you there, I think, is the wind industry, isn't it, which you've been talking about a lot recently? Yes, typically as a short seller, if you're kind of feel comfortable being in consensus or uncomfortable when you have anti-consensus view, then short selling is never going to be for you. You have to walk into a room, listen to a management team and pick holes in it and, and, and work out you know, what are the flaws, why are they telling me that, and, and what are they lying about. And therefore, short selling works best when you look at an industry where there's a high degree of groupthink and where most of the investors following that industry have bought into a narrative that exists solely because it's been repeated over and over again. And that narrative may not be true. That's why the money is in is in the companies. And what we also find in alternative energy is that it's a complex subject. It needs investors to invest a lot of time in understanding how electricity grids work, in understanding how governments intervene and distort the market. And it's also an industry where companies are very prepared to to claim extraordinary doubtful things about the future of the industry and the nature of their product solely on the basis that governments are prepared to to provide subsidies and investors are prepared to believe their stories. And that is what we find pretty much all over the alternative energy space, whether it's battery power, hydrogen power, electric cars, heat pumps, EVs, and our probably our kind of biggest position, which is the shorts that we've had in wind power, particularly operators and turbine companies. Okay, tell us a little bit more about the problems with the operators and the turbine companies. So if you think about what electricity grid needs, an electricity grid needs reliable workers. It needs to know that 
those workers are going to turn up when electricity is needed. So if you think about the electricity grid as a factory that needs reliable workers to turn up between specific times when the factory is open and, and their labor is needed. Now, the energy transition basically involves transferring from reliable workers to unreliable workers. The wind and solar are unreliable because the weather is the constraining factor rather than when they're needed or power generation. So the first principle here is that weather-dependent power is a, is a less good product, which in fact, the more you look at it, electricity grids don't find particularly useful. And at low shares of wind or solar, that doesn't matter so much because if you've got like one out of 10 uh, workers that is unreliable and nine workers that are reliable, so the reliable workers being gas, coal, hydro, nuclear, even biomass, that doesn't matter so much because you kind of hide it. But when you want to go to a 100% renewable grid, and when you think that the plans that the UK government have got is to go from 13 or 14 gigawatts of offshore wind to 50 and maybe beyond, and for wind to go to 50% market share and beyond, there is simply no understanding of how electricity grids work and how they need reliable workers rather than unreliable workers. And the problem with this is that, and this is why basically electricity prices continue to go up, is that the factory owner still needs to contract the reliable workers because the reliable workers are the only the only thing that makes the electricity grid work. So you can keep hiring more and more unreliable workers, but it actually doesn't solve any problem in that the, the factory owner needs to resource the factory for reliable workers. And that is why we've had $4 trillion globally spent on renewable energy over the last decade, and the share of fossil fuels has gone from 82% to just 81%. It's a fundamentally low-value product that actually gets even lower value in an exponential way the higher the market share of wind and solar becomes. And that is something that politicians don't understand and seems seemingly very few investors understand either. But the key point is that you're making is that it doesn't matter how much renewable power you have and how much renewable power you feel you're able to put into the grid, you still have to pay for the backup. So the traditional power stations have to continue to be there and continue to be paid for, regardless of how many turbines you build. Correct. Um, and that's something that need- is very rarely factored in to the numbers. When you see people saying wind power is cheap or solar power is cheap, one of the reasons they can say that is because they're not factoring in the cost of the backup power that has to exist. Exactly. So my argument would be, if you got wind and solar companies to pay for the costs of intermittency, they would stop building it because they would find that the costs of intermittency to make wind and solar power the equal of the other forms of power generation would be so prohibitively expensive that no rational person would build any more wind and solar. And I think that is basically the the distortion in the market is if wind and solar companies had to pay for intermittency, then they wouldn't build any more. And the wind and solar companies will say, oh, we're working on battery storage or 
we're going to convert the excess power to hydrogen, or we're even going to export it. For reasons we can go into, that just isn't going to work either. Okay, another thing. Let's come back to batteries and storage because that's very important because it is the answer that everybody gives when they say we build more wind power and uh, the backup isn't the issue because over the next decade we'll be able to store this stuff. That's one answer. But the other answer you get when you talk to people about this subject is we just build more. We build more and more and more wind. And then when the wind isn't blowing in one place, it's going to be blowing in another place. And that way there'll always be wind blowing somewhere and the grid will always be supported by renewables. Why doesn't that work? If the wind is blowing in the North Sea, it's also blowing in the, in the Irish Sea. And it's probably also, when it's blowing in Denmark, it's also blowing in Germany and Sweden. So the problem with that is we already have wind turbines that all work at the same time and all turn up to work at the same time. Already in the UK, we have, when the wind blows, a glut of cheap power that we can't store um, profitably, we can't export profitably. So the question is, why do we need to build more? What is the value of this product that we can't use? And I think, you know, Boris Johnson came up with the idea that Britain was going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. Well, Saudi Arabia's production costs for a barrel of oil are 5 to $10, and they're currently selling it at $90. The problem with exporting wind is that when we have this glut, Everybody else in Europe has the same glut and they've got low power prices. So what is the price that we're going to sell this glut at? Close to zero. And unfortunately, you will then get a, a close to zero power price for an export. The wind operators don't care because they're getting the guaranteed price that the government has guaranteed them through the CFD or the ROC certificate. And therefore, you end up in Britain having an industry where the average price of generation is currently £100 per megawatt hour on average. And you have to think, let's look at the whole, whole installed base over the last 15 years. And you'd be exporting it for 5 to 10 or 0, and therefore it'd be a loss-making industry. Who's paying for that? Not the wind farms, but the British consumer who pays through higher electricity bills. So Britain is the Saudi Arabia of wind is quite possibly the worst economic business model that has ever existed. Okay, you're pretty clear on that. Explain why the optimism about batteries and storage is misplaced, because the answer to everything that you said, which is very compelling, to everything that you said was, well, it doesn't matter because very soon, any day now, we're going to find a way to store all this excess, and that makes it all make sense. So look, the, the problem is that we don't yet have batteries that can store power on an industrial scale for a long time. And where those batteries, where, where the, the biggest batteries at the moment are incredibly expensive and obviously require so much lithium that they will almost inevitably consume all of the world's lithium that, that is mined. So there's a battery being built in Trafford, Manchester at the moment, supposedly the biggest industrial or the largest lithium-ion industrial battery in the world, it's going to cost $750 million, at least that's the stated cost, and the battery would store one gigawatt for two hours or two gigawatt hours. Now, that's enough to power the grid for three minutes and 17 seconds in Britain. So if you think if we had a 100% renewable grid, we would need thousands of these batteries. And of course, the cost of those would be more than 100% of GDP 
And remember as well that these batteries will only last eight to 10 years. So it'll be more than 100% of GDP every eight to 10 years. Again, would quickly bankrupt Britain. Turbines don't last that long either, do they? That is the other thing in that there seems to be this idea amongst net zero zealots, the uh, moving to a renewable grid is somehow one-off costs. Now, the wind farms will tell you that the, 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 the wind farms last 25 years. I think there's a, a body of what I find con- very convincing research, which suggests that actually, particularly offshore where you've got you know, bad weather and salty waters, that actually the life of a, a wind turbine is probably closer to 10 than 25. So all of these construction costs, which again are a, a pretty large part of GDP, will have to be taken on a pretty regular basis as well. So given all this, what is it that you short to reflect your opinions or your analysis here? Well, firstly, you know, pretty diversified in our short book, successful shorting on a professional basis is very unlike the film The Big Short, where the guy <laughs> goes to bed and he's either going to make a lot of money or he's going to go bust. That is not the way to do it. And it's certainly in a daily dealing liquid fund that, well, that you know, you're, you're very looking after. Well, disappointing, Barry. Very disappointing. It doesn't <laughs> sound like any fun yeah. at all. But let me maybe talk you through Orsted, the world's leading offshore wind company, and the research that we've done on it and, and, and why we came to short it. So Orsted, if you look at the accounts, it gives no, hardly any visibility into its underlying projects. So none of the economics of the individual wind farms are disclosed. And you've got to therefore just look at the accounts, the group accounts, and just accept that that you're not going to be told anything about the individual projects. And I always find it amazing how none of the sell-side analysts covering Orsted has bothered to build a model covering the company from the bottom up by modeling its its uh, individual projects. So that is what we've tried to do. I would say this is a business that doesn't have any equity value because the projects, certainly those that have been built in the last five years, aren't going to be profitable enough, and they're not going to be able to service the debt in the special purpose vehicles, and they're going to have to write off all of the, all of the cost of the unprofitable projects, uh, and that falls a big hole in the balance sheet. We'd be delighted if there are any wind enthusiasts that will look at that and tell us where we're wrong. Um, and listeners, please do send your hate mail up for this podcast, direct to Barry rather than to me. I'm not sure my not sure my <laughs> inbox is big enough for this, Barry. <laughs> I think people don't seem to understand energy transitions. When in the Industrial Revolution, we move from essentially uh, uh, biofuels to coal or wood to coal, it was because coal was a better product and you could get more bang for buck in energy. You could convert coal's chemical energy into mechanical energy. And then when oil and gas replaced coal, it was because, again, the energy density was fantastic. You, you could store it in a liquid and that made it more easy to uh, transport. It made it easy to uh, use in an engine for, for cars and aeroplanes. Essentially, Energy transitions only work when it's a superior product. The problem we've got at the moment is we've got an energy transition where all the products are inferior. So EVs are inferior to the internal combustion. I know someone will tell me they like driving their electric car for, for five miles a day. 
But EVs are inferior products. Heat pumps are inferior products. Wind is an inferior product. So in order to get people to use inferior products, you require governments to get involved through subsidies, through banning all the other more useful products, and you require zero interest rates in order for all of these projects to be stacked up with zero-cost debt in order for equity investors to make a return. And all of we've reached a tipping point in all of that because governments can't afford anymore to subsidize it. Consumers are fed up with it and investors are losing money. So it's time to wake up. Okay, well, I think you might have woken a few people up. Now, let's move on and talk about what you're positive about. What are you holding in your portfolio as a long that you like? Uh, I'm going to prompt you a little bit by saying that last year, you said there was a moral case for investing in fossil fuels. Well, there's a very strong moral case for investing in fossil fuels, because without fossil fuels, Western civilization will last about three hours. And if Western civilization lasts about three hours, and China and all the other countries that, that have different political values than the West keeps using fossil fuels, then very quickly, um, the, our, our values that we all share for democracy and free speech are going to disappear from the world. So I think that's the moral case of fossil fuels. Um, and bear in mind, we've already halved our carbon dioxide emissions in the UK by switching to gas from coal in the 1990s. And we've gone from 6% of global emissions to 1%. Now, during that time, I don't remember the narrative on global warming changing because Britain had halved its carbon emissions. In fact, it seems to have got worse. How anybody with any confidence could predict that by going to zero carbon emissions, getting rid of the same amount we've already got rid of, that somehow the narrative on climate change is going to change is beyond me. So what will effectively happen is that we're bankrupt ourselves, ruin our economy, degrade our geopolitical status in the world, and that will have very bad moral outcomes, not only with society falling apart, but also you know, with our political values as well. Now, Barry, this is exactly what Tony Blair says. Did you ever think that, that you and Tony Blair would be agreeing on something so contrarian? Um, you well. don't have to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to answer that one. Uh, move on and tell me. Top tell my top, my top rate of tax under Tony Blair was 40%, so he wasn't bad it at everything. It wasn't all bad, was it? Um, so tell uh, no. me, what, what are you actually investing in the long book at the moment? Then? What's in there that you like that you can tell our listeners about? Yeah. So look, if you're multi-asset, then you've got to appreciate that the, the times that we're in at the moment where government is big and government needs to be funded means that government bonds will give you much better risk award than what they have over recent years. So if you're already getting 5 or 5.5% in government bonds, there's scope for that yield to go higher. And you can manage that, of course, by low duration and being able to reinvest. Mm. But essentially, the risk-free rate now is much higher. And that's a very different investing scenario than what we faced since 2007. So most people should have a government bond portfolio. And most private investors, instead of investing in bank deposits who you get taxed on, should be investing in low coupon government bonds where the yield to maturity is capital gains free. Now, on top of that, if you ask me where in the equity market are you investing, um, if I'm right about the nature of the regime that we're going to be in for this decade, 
We want to be in short duration equities. So those are equities that are generating a lot of cash flow or on very cheap multiples, and they're giving that cash flow back to investors for actually investors to maybe buy government bonds with, because government bonds have to be funded first before anything else in the global economy gets funded. We are pretty diversified, and the whole point of being a professional investor is you've got to generate returns pretty consistently over decades, not just have a a couple of good years before you blow up. But if I say, look, what have we been really bullish? I think we really like the oil tanker companies, particularly the clean product tankers and the LPG tankers. And that's really because it's a pretty unglamorous old economy industry. The shipyards are full of container ships and LNG carriers. It's difficult to get new ships. But at the same time, this energy transition is creating such a dislocation in energy flows with Western countries trying to basically get fossil fuels off their own balance sheet. And for example, Australia doesn't have a single large oil refinery. So all of the refined products that Australia needs, you know, gasoline, kerosene, diesel, it has to import. That creates huge demand for clean product tankers. And Europe used to import two-thirds of its imports of this these products came from Russia. Now, post the war, obviously those products have been banned. Europe's got to import from elsewhere in the world because it doesn't have enough refining capacity. And Russia has also got to export to the rest of the world past Europe. And that results in more demand for tonne mileage, more demands for ships. So you've essentially got two global fleets at the moment. You've got all of the old tonnage, which is privately owned, which Russia has been buying up to, to export beyond Europe. And then you've got the quoted sector, which is exporting into Europe. And you've got all this dislocation in trade flows, as well as the fact that very few countries want to be self-sufficient in fossil fuels. So that requires more shipping. We're getting great yields and being paid back to us of you know, 20, 25% in a year. So the stocks that I would highlight there, Hafnia in clean products, Frontline in crude, Dorian in, in, in LPG. These are stocks that we've already made a lot of money on, not only in capital gains and dividends, but, but we think I have the, have the potential to keep doing well for a number of years. Okay, interesting. That is a sector not many people mention on this podcast. Anything else in there that's exciting? We've done very well this year by still being bullish on US house builders. And that you might ask, how can you be bullish on US house builders and be bearish on treasuries? And I'd say one is, it's great from if you can find things where you think you're adding some value from the bottom up, which maybe contradict some of your overall assumptions. They're great diversifiers in terms of the overall portfolio. But we just look at US housing and think there are far less housing starts being built now than what there were 20 years ago, and the population's a lot higher. Therefore, you've got yeah. this incredible structural demand for houses. Uh, obviously, a lot of the, the story of the US is that, as Stanley Druckermuller has said, that even his caddy and locker room attendant, every Tom, Dick and Harry and Sally have turned out their mortgages, and therefore, you're getting very little inventory in terms of the secondary market. So if you effectively want to buy a house, you've got to buy a new build. 
Yeah. We've also done pretty well in mega cap tech. I'd say that offsets some of the NASDAQ beta of the things we've been short of in profitless tech. But also, I think the thing that people don't get about these mega tech mega cap tech companies is they've got huge cash balances which were formerly being paid nothing and now they're getting paid five percent on them and that is if you like that is this is why not all of the economy is being hurt by higher rates there are people uh, who've got significant tax uh cash balances that are actually benefiting from higher rates and, and and generating more profit as a result yeah i mean that's a huge inflow of effectively free money isn't it Interest rates on your deposits from, from zero to five percent. Barry, you've got some Greek banks in your portfolio. Tell us about those quickly. Yeah, so if you think about Greek banks ten years ago, they were the worst banks in the world. They owned a lot of Greek government bonds, and one in two Greek loans had gone sour. So, what happened as a result of Greek sovereign debt being restructured was actually Greece got just a fantastic deal. Uh, for 30 years, most of Greek government debt was guaranteed to only pay a 1% coupon. So they've effectively not only turned out their debt, but they fixed that at just 1%. And that means actually, in a, that didn't look so good in a 0% interest rate world. But in a 5% interest rate world, that's now spectacularly good. And Greece has got a fantastic deal. Now, its economy is growing uh, three, four, five percent at the moment, which is, of course, much higher than the zero elsewhere in Europe. Its banks have worked out, worked through their bad loans, so uh, NPLs have come down from fifty percent to five percent. There are only really four banks in Greece, so there's not the same competition for deposits as we've saw, seen in the US with their three thousand banks. So the Greek banks are getting great net interest margin expansion. There's been a centre-right government elected very pro-business that's in for five years. And Greek banks, which still trade significantly below uh, book value, therefore, this journey back from investment hell back into investment grade will, I think, be very profitable uh, for investors. Excellent. That's really interesting. And I'm pretty sure there won't be many other people with that position. Now, I want to ask you also about your fees. So your um, overall charges end up reasonably high just because you have a performance fee, which is 20% of all returns above a 5% return subject to a high watermark. And I just wonder, in an inflationary environment, if that 5% isn't a little unkind. Well, I mean, it was 5% when inflation was obviously zero. So We've been char- our fee structures obviously been the, been the same since the, the 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 fund launched in 2009. I mean, my view about active management fees is that most people would be better off buying passive funds for exposure to market direction. And I think the problem that active management has is that 99% of the products in active management actually charge active management fees. For bait and even performance fees for repackaging beta. We charge a performance fee. You only pay that performance fee when, of course, the fund does well. And we think that an active management fee is justified if you're actually doing something different to, to passive and not charging for beta. Um, you know, given that, given, you know, we return 
obviously positive returns when the market doesn't. We've generated more than 100% of our return over the last five years in negative markets. The correlation to the market is practically zero. So we are doing something very different to the rest of the active management world. We're not charging you for beta. And of course, all fees at all times are already accrued in the daily price. So when we when we talk about performance, those are our net of fees. And therefore, you know, we think the active management industry in fund management only survives if it does something different to passive. And certainly that's the business model that we've got. Okay, Barry, I'm going to take you to a last question. Very important question. Everyone who listens hangs on for the answer to this question. And we, you know, we keep records and we've got a spreadsheet of the answers. So this is very, very important. Okay. I know your answer already, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. For 10 years, you have to choose one of these, one of these assets, only one, and you can't have anything else at all. Obviously, this is never going to happen in real life, but for the purposes of the question, you can choose a deposit account in the UK. Gold or Bitcoin? What's it going to be? Well, definitely not Bitcoin because the only value, I don't think Bitcoin's worth zero, but it's only not worth zero because it's got a use in terms of funding terrorism and money laundering. So, um, you know, given that I'm not involved in any of those industries, I don't need to hold any Bitcoin or invest in Bitcoin. Um, uh, don't bother writing in about that, by the way. They're going to. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think uh, a deposit account in the UK, okay, um, what are levels of personal taxation going to be? I mean, five. so you get 5% headline, yeah, or, or put it this way, how much have I got in that deposit as well? Because it's pretty difficult to find bank accounts that are prepared to pay you a decent rate of interest for a, uh, a large deposit. So, you know, if I've got 10 grand and I'm not paying high rate of income tax, maybe I'll have that deposit account. So by default, I end up in gold simply because I don't trust governments. I mean, if my deposit account in the UK is a fiat currency, my Bitcoin, despite all the anti-fiat currency rhetoric is also an even worse form of fiat currency. So I end up in gold by default. So I'll choose gold. Okay, gold it is. Barry, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. Catch our debrief on this week's conversation on the Marin Talks Money after show in our normal feed. That is accessible to Apple news subscribers. Bloomberg subscribers look for the after show online. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell your friends. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Barry Norris and, of course, as usual, to John Stefik. Be sure to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link for that is in the show notes. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.